Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we volumize your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we revisit the science of mistletoe, misbehaving octopuses, and medical guess who. But first, here's news of sarcasm detectors and four-dimensional displays. Computer science researchers at the Complex Adaptive Systems Lab at the University of Central Florida have developed that gadget that the world has anxiously been waiting for. A sarcasm detector. Sentiment analysis is the automated process of identifying the emotion associated with text, either positive, negative or neutral. Many humans have been known to miss sarcasm in a text conversation online, so it's a challenging task to teach a machine. The Florida team trained the computer model to find patterns that often indicate sarcasm and combine that with teaching the program to correctly pick out keywords in sequences that were more likely to indicate sarcasm. The process is called multi-head self-attention and gated recurrent units. The multi-head self-attention module aids in identifying crucial sarcastic keywords from the input and the recurrent units learn long-range dependencies between these keywords to better classify the input text. Some of the keywords are just, again, and totally, in a first sentence, and even, until, and already, from the third sentence. They collected messages from Twitter using a Twitter bot called Online Sarcasm. They also scraped Reddit for messages and deleted any that labelled themselves as sarcasm with a slash s, because that would be too easy. They scraped headlines from online newspapers The Onion and HuffPost. The Onion has sarcastic versions of current events, whereas HuffPost has what passes for real news headlines. The headlines are used as content, and the news article is used as context. The team used the Python programming language on the NVIDIA Pascal Titan X with 16GB of memory. There is, of course, a strong interest from the military, who are well known for their over-literal interpretations. The University of Florida began working on this problem under a Defense Advanced Research Program Agency grant that supports the military organization's computational simulation of online social behavior program. The team suggests that, outside of the military, the software could also help businesses understand feedback and criticism online. Or they could just hire a human. They also suggest that businesses could indulge in opinion mining to steal data that can be sold to marketers and election manipulators like Cambridge Analytica. And of course, they suggest it could detect cyberbullying and trolls. The paper totally failed to actually name the ratio of correctly identified sarcasm to wrongly identified sarcasm, so we don't know if the software is too sensitive or if the sarcasm mostly just goes over its head. 
The research was published in the journal Entropy and was titled Interpretable Multi-Head Self-Attention Architecture for Sarcasm Detection in Social Media. Multi-Sensory Display A collaboration of researchers from Interact Lab at the University of Sussex in Brighton, England and the Tokyo University of Science in Japan have invented a multi-dimensional display that doesn't need a screen or glasses or goggles and can also produce sound and allows people to feel like they're touching the images using a small plastic bead manipulated by ultrasound. They call it the Multimodal Acoustic Trap Display. Sonic tweezers allow a small light object to be manipulated by an array of speakers that produce ultrasound. Kind of like a primitive sonic screwdriver. In this case, the speakers manipulate a small white plastic bead, which is then illuminated by a red, green or blue light to control its colour as it moves fast enough to cause a persistence of vision illusion that creates the display. Persistence of vision is the effect that allows individual frames of a film to be flipped like a stack of photos to give the illusion of movement. Moving the bead faster than our eyes can follow, while painting it with different colours of light, like pixels in a TV screen, means the display can show a three-dimensional object in motion. The same array of speakers that moves the bead with ultrasound, too high for us to hear, are also used to provide audible sound and also to provide for tactile feedback that feels like you're touching the object in the display. The sense of touch is caused by a second speaker array which projects low frequency sound around 250 Hz and can be positioned to match the location of your hand in relation to the displayed object. The speaker array is using precisely applied air pressure to give the illusion that you're touching the displayed object when in reality you're touching air and not even the plastic bead. The system can also levitate multiple plastic beads simultaneously to depict multiple objects. It's not ready to replace your TV yet. But in the near future, we could have full-colour, three-dimensional, touchable and hearable displays accessible by anyone without using goggles or glasses. There's a video of the demonstration on the show notes page. The paper was titled, A Volumetric Display for Visual, Tactile and Audio Presentation Using Acoustic Trapping, and was published in the journal Nature. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And from the 2008 archives, here's Patrick Ruby with the science of kissing under the mistletoe. Um, I've noticed you around. I find you very attractive. The mistletoe is an evolutionary anti-villain. It's a bad boy, with a few redeeming traits that keeps us guessing. Nasty, but necessary in the plant and animal world. 
therapeutic but also toxic in the human world, and yet for many of us it makes Christmas one of the sexiest holidays. Mistletoe is a word used to describe hemiparasitic plants that grow on trees and shrubs. They can be grouped into five massive families that grow in both temperate and tropical climates throughout the world. They are hemiparasites because they usually obtain water and minerals from their host, but have their own evergreen leaves that carry out some photosynthesis. So they do make a bit of energy for themselves. Mistletoes reproduce by flowering and producing fruit with seeds. Birds and insects pollinate the flowers. The plant then produces fruit. Once a bird has eaten the fruit, the seeds are released and contain a sticky outer coating called viskin. This helps them to stick to the branches of nearby trees and initiate the new invasion of a new host. Once it invades the new host and starts feeding off it, it starts to limit the host's growth and can actually kill its host in heavy infestations. Doesn't sound like a very nice plant so far, does it? Except for the birds and the bees, that is. So what are our bad boys redeeming features? Some birds, such as the northern spotted owl and the marbled murrelet, nest in North American dwarf mistletoes. Scientific research published in the Science News in 2002 has shown that junipers that grow near mistletoes are more likely to have their fruit eaten by feeding birds. So it's a bit like hanging around a good-looking friend to improve your chances of picking up. And of course, mistletoes can be good for us too. The tradition of kissing under the mistletoe is thought to originate from Scandinavia. The mistletoe was considered a symbol of peace in ancient times. So if two enemies met each other under the mistletoe, they laid down their arms and agreed not to fight that day. The kissing part must have come later in history. Our current Christmassy mistletoes come in lots of shapes and sizes. The traditional Christmas decoration is the European mistletoe, Viscum album, from the Santa Lucia family. The North American mistletoe is Phorodendrum serotinum, also from the Santa Lucia family. In Australia, we have 85 species of wild mistletoe from both the Lauranthiaceae and Santalacea families. The mistletoe was thought to be magical in Celtic times and was given to both animals and humans to treat various diseases. In the early 20th century, it was first noticed to have a positive effect on cancer patients. It is now used sometimes in Europe as an adjunct therapy to chemotherapy. Let's have a closer look at the medicine. Would you, um... According to drugdigest.org, European mistletoe seems to be the best for use in medicine. In other words, it's the least toxic. Laboratory experiments have shown that it might help kill fast-growing cancer cells. In clinical studies, injections of mistletoe have been shown to slow the progression of breast cancers, stomach cancers, and colon cancers. However, the evidence is still quite weak. So far, it doesn't seem to be that good in fighting cancers on its own. But when used with chemotherapy, it might help reduce side effects and improve general health. How does it work? Well, our ambiguous friend hasn't revealed all its secrets just yet. We know chemotherapy destroys growing cells. Cancer cells are cells that are no longer under our control. They are anarchists, 
not bound by the rules other cells follow, and are free to grow and divide at their own pace as long as there are enough nutrients for them. By killing, growing, and dividing cells with chemotherapy, we kill some cancer cells. But we usually kill some normal growing cells as well, such as our white blood cells and the cells lining our gut and skin. This is where our mysterious mistletoe might help us. There is some evidence that mistletoe can boost our white blood cells and immune system. This can reduce some of the side effects of chemotherapy, and cancer patients feel better generally. A review of mistletoe treatments published in the Cochrane Database Systems Review in 2007 found that mistletoe had a weak benefit on improving life in breast cancer patients. Some of the trials of mistletoe so far have been badly designed, so it's hard to say one way or another if it's doing any good. It remains a bit of a dark horse. There are some trials which have shown that immune boosting effects of mistletoe might help slow progression of HIV and hepatitis C. When given in conjunction with normal antiviral therapies, when it comes to some of the side effects, our boy turns a little bad again. If you were to pick some unprocessed mistletoe and eat it, you could poison yourself. Mistletoes can make you vomit, give you diarrhea and stomach pain, and they can also make your blood pressure drop. Some of these side effects can still be experienced in the injectable preparations. In addition, mistletoe can cause miscarriages in pregnant women. So, what is the final verdict on our famous vampire plant? Is it a tree-killing toxic pest, or a misunderstood moocher waiting to reveal its true colours? How good will this kiss be? Big thanks to Patrick Ruby for that Christmas kiss under the vampire plant. Was it good for you? Time to put on your thinking caps as, from 2008, Victoria Bond challenges your knowledge about diseases. And remember, 2008 is pre-COVID. So on this episode of Diffusion, we're going to be playing a little game called Who Am I, where I will describe a disease and you'll guess which one it is. I'm Victoria Bond, and I'll be asking the questions. And my good friend Jamie Leclerc will be trying to guess the answers. You should try to guess as well from wherever you are in your car commuting or listening at home. So here we go. Number one, I am the top infectious disease killer in developing countries. Now we have a few choices.、Hmm. Is it A. Malaria, B. Lower respiratory diseases like pneumonia, C. Tuberculosis. D, hepatitis B, or E, AIDS. Hmm. So once again, the question was, what's the top infectious disease killer in developing countries? So you know, I think a lot of people have tuberculosis, but I'm not sure that a lot of people die from it. And I know a lot of people die from AIDS, but I'm not sure it's the top killer. So maybe it's malaria. Uh oh. No,、oh. no. I'm afraid the answer was B, which is lower respiratory diseases, things like pneumonia that you can just transmit by coughing. I would have never guessed that. Yeah, it's just、huh. have no health infrastructures. It's a pretty big killer. All right, so let's move on to question number two. Yes.、Uh, question number two. I am the most common infectious disease in the world. 
the one people get most often. Okay. Alright, so we have the same options as before. Am I A, malaria? B, lower respiratory disease? C, tuberculosis? Hepatitis B? Or E, AIDS? Okay, so the last question I said that tuberculosis is really common. Mm-hmm. So that could be it. I know that... But I don't know, I feel like that might be a trick question. <laughs> These are probably all trick questions. Oh, they're not, they're just, they're just the truth. I, <laughs> I'm the not truth. out there to get you. The truth is sad. Okay, I'm gonna guess hepatitis B, actually. Hepatitis B? I'm going last second. Alright, listeners, do you have your answer ready? Is B, hepatitis B. Very good. Yes! Um, so, it's a little bit more about hep B. It's actually a virus, but it's transmitted by cough, like the common cold. Key, yeah, and you can get um, vaccines for hepatitis B, which a lot of people get, you know, if they're going to be working in hospitals. And one of the big baddies about hep B is that it causes liver damage. Ah. So cirrhosis. It over 2 billion people worldwide, so that's over a third of the world's population has hepatitis B. You, you mentioned TB earlier, and you were pretty close because mm-hmm. it's the most common disease caused by bacteria. Ah. But hepatitis B is just the most common disease, generally. I'm um, glad I changed my answer at the last second. Excellent. They always say go with your good instinct, but not this time. Not this time. So TB is really interesting because a lot of people have it, so 2 billion people, but only 10% of them actually have the symptoms. So, you know, oh. like coughing blood in the old Victorian movies. <laughs> However, if you have AIDS, that 10% in a lifetime changes to 10% per year will develop symptoms. Ah. So it's really- So it compounds all everything. Yeah. Bad. It's terrible. Okay. <clears throat> all right. So are you ready to move on to question number three? Yep. All right. Who am I? I am a parasite which lives in red blood cells. Is it A, malaria? B, lower respiratory infections? C. Tuberculosis D. Hep B or E. AIDS Well, to be honest, I only know this one because I know one is a parasite. I didn't quite know which one lives in the red blood cells, but I know that malaria is caused by a parasite. So, is malaria your answer? Yes. Do you have your answer, listeners? Alright. The answer is A. Malaria. Very good. So yeah, malaria lives in the red blood cells. That's that's basically how it matures. And when it does that, it destroys them, which is what causes fevers and, you know, all those bad okay. symptoms. All right, n- now we're moving on to the last question. All right. So, I am a virus which infects cells of the immune system. Oh. So is it malaria, lower respiratory infections, tuberculosis, hepatitis B, or AIDS? Well, assuming that AIDS stands for autoimmune deficiency syndrome, <laughs> I'm going to go with AIDS. Very good. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. You're just, you're too clever. Did you get that, listeners? <laughs> so the answer is AIDS. And what AIDS does is it targets helper T cells, which are cells that help boost the immune response to common diseases. And so that's why people who have AIDS kind of develop these strange diseases that they should be able to throw off. And that's why tuberculosis just gets so much worse. Because they have no more immune system. Okay. What was my score? I don't... 
remember. <laughs> I think you got two. You got My three. My score was awesome. It was great. <laughs> yeah. How did you do? <laughs> Woo! <laughs> All right. Thank you, Victoria Bond. How did you do? And finally, from 2008, here I am talking about misbehaving octopuses. An octopus has caused havoc in his aquarium by performing juggling tricks using his fellow occupants, smashing rocks against the glass, and turning off the power by short-circuiting a lamp. Staff believe the octopus, called Otto, has been annoyed by the bright light shining into his aquarium, and had discovered he could extinguish it by climbing onto the rim of his tank and squirting a jet of water in its direction. The short circuit had baffled electricians as well as staff at the Sea Star Aquarium in Coburg, Germany. So they decided to take shifts, sleeping on the floor to find out what caused the mysterious blackouts. A spokesman said it was a serious matter because it shorted the electricity supply to the whole aquarium and that threatened the lives of the other animals when the water pumps ceased to work. It was the third night that they found out that it was Otto the octopus that was responsible for the chaos. They knew he was bored as the aquarium is closed for the winter, and at two feet seven inches, Otto had discovered he was big enough to swing onto the edge of his tank and shoot out the 2,000 watt spotlight above him with a carefully directed jet of water. Director Elfried Kuma, who witnessed the act, said we've put the light a bit higher now so he shouldn't be able to reach it, but Otto is constantly craving for attention and always comes up with new stunts, so we've realised we'll have to keep a more careful eye on him and also perhaps give him a few more toys to play with. Once we saw him juggling the hermit crabs in his tank. Another time, he threw stones against the glass, damaging it. And from time to time, he completely rearranges his tank to make it suit his own taste better, much to the distress of his fellow tank inhabitants. Now, what sort of toys might they give him? Well, Nature's blog reports that scientists have given other octopuses Rubik's Cubes in an attempt to determine if they have a favoured tentacle just like we have a favoured arm or hand, to see if they might be octodectrous, a word they seem to have invented just for that story. According to a number of British papers, around 25 octopuses at aquariums across Europe will be given toys, and visitors will be asked to record which arm they're using to play with them, using a diagram showing the arms as R1, R2, R3, R4, and L1, L2, L3, and L4. Octopuses have more than half their nerves in their arms, had been shown to partially think with their arms, says Claire Little of the Weymouth Sea Life Centre. Many animals have been shown to favour a certain arm, so we'll see if octopuses can be added to that list. She says the findings could help make life in captivity more pleasant for the animals. They're very susceptible to stress, so if they do have a favourite side to be fed on, it could reduce the risk to them. No one suggested that any of the octopuses might actually solve the Rubik's Cube, but there's a slim chance that they might. And now, here's Sky News presenter Tom Connell speaking with the Minister for Mining, sorry, Resources, Keith Pitt. Okay, so can you tell me though what size, for a 157 megawatt wind farm, what size battery do you need to make it dispatchable? Uh, well, Tom, what I can tell you is that intermittent wind and solar... Is, that's a not, basic question. ...is not dispatchable. But it is with a battery if it's big enough. Uh, well, I've made a decision based on what... Yeah, but hang on, but that's just a basic question. I know you've got an engineering background. Hmm. Solar or wind is not dispatchable unless it has a battery. That's true, right? Depending on the size of the battery. Oh, well, unless it's got other sources. It could be hybrid, it could be gas, it could be uh, tied up with a hydro, it could be pumped hydro. There's any number of combinations. It could be diesel. could be battery. Uh, it could be any number of things. 
but it could be a battery. <laughs> Tom, as I've said many times. Well, yeah, I just don't understand why you won't agree that it could be that a battery can back up a wind farm. Uh, well, as I've said, it comes down to a whole pile of decisions, including uh, capacity, availability. But I'm not going to that. I'm just asking, can a battery back up a wind farm? Uh, well, once again, how, how big is it? How long does it run for? What does right. it want it to do? Well, a big enough battery, can it back up a wind farm? Well, this is pretty broad and hypothetical, Tom. <laughs> well, it just seems like a simple question. If a battery's big enough, it can back up a wind farm, right? How big's big enough? Well, I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> That's the exact question. OK. All right. We'll move on. And now, Prime Minister Scott Morrison, followed by the Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce. Uh, we're here today to announce that we're announcing here today the announcement that we're announcing all of the announced measures of this announcement on the basis of the announcement we have made today. And at this stage, having just announced it, um, we'll be announcing further measures on uh, these matters uh, once they're finalised. I want to make sure that uh, what, where we end up is a position, if it's going forward, that takes our people uh, not backwards, to, that uh, takes, them, takes them forward. That's just, yes. That is so vitally important. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3 MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and... 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf, or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. 
And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.